0: I wonder what do you think of when you hear that word church? What do you think of when you hear that word church? Do you think of potlucks and political rallies? Maybe you think of hypocrites and holy rollers. Or maybe words like judgmental or patriarchal come to mind. Maybe to you churches are places where sermons scold. And the only thing more intolerant than their doctrine is their duration. People come with all kinds of conceptions about what churches are like. And for many, churches aren't safe spaces or safe places. They're cold institutions encrusted by centuries of traditions and deeply out of step with the times, right? Read the papers, talk to people on the streets, and that's what they tend to think. And some of those assessments aren't off the mark, right? My sermons can go a bit long. All right, but I mean, is that how we're to think about church? Where the only thing more fake perhaps than the, the flowers before a pulpit or in the foyer are the people in the pews. Is that what we're to think? Maybe you've come this morning and you've been invited by a friend and, and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. You know, we're, we're glad you've come. I hope you've been encouraged this morning. And I don't deny that Christians are often better at preaching the truth than they are at practicing that truth. But what should mark genuine Christian community? What might God actually have to teach you this morning about himself as we think about marks of genuine Christian community? If you're looking perhaps this morning for a church home, what kind of community does the Bible call you to value? Is it simply about slick services that are there to cater to our convenience and our independence? Or does God actually call us up to something more? If you're a member of UBC, what kind of member would God have you to be? What should mark your relationships with other individuals in this church? Well, to help us think more about these kinds of questions this morning, I want us to return our Bibles to the book of Galatians, to the book of Galatians chapter 6. If we're using one of the Bibles provided in the seatbacks before you, you can find it on page 975. I believe it's page 975. And if you're just joining us, Galatians is a book about the good news, about what Christians call the gospel. And in the first two chapters of Galatians, we learn that there are some false teachers that had crept into these churches in Galatia, in modern-day Turkey, and they were saying that Jesus was necessary for a right standing with God, he just wasn't sufficient, He was necessary, he just wasn't sufficient. It was Jesus plus, Jesus plus circumcision, plus Sabbath, plus food laws. It was Jesus plus all the mosaic requirements necessary to be acceptable to God. And so Paul pens this letter to the Galatians. And the basic message we've said is that the good news of the gospel is not what God requires of us, but what Christ has accomplished for us. All right, The good news of the gospel. It's not what God requires of us, but what Christ has accomplished for us. He argues that very clearly in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. You can go back and read that later if you like. And then he supports all that in one through 4.11. And then in 4.12, he shifts from some of these indicative statements about the essence of the gospel to the imperatives and the kind of effects that gospel should have in the life of those who believe it. And one of the key themes we've seen is freedom. So if you look back up to chapter 5, verse 13, Paul says, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve. Literally become a slave to one another. So we've seen that Christianity has an individual component, and it also has this corporate, this communal component. And last week in 5, 16 through 25, we thought more about that individual component, what it looks like to not indulge the flesh, for to walk by the Spirit, we said, is to wage war against sin. And now in 6, 1 to 10, Paul's going to turn from some of those individual elements, and he's going to focus more on the corporate life together. And we're going to learn, I think, here's some valuable lessons about what should mark genuine Christian community. So let's look at Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, verses 1 through 10. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you, too, be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially To those who are the household of faith. I want you to notice even how we see those corporate, those communal elements right in the sort of the bookends of verses 1 and 10. He addresses them in the opening there as brothers and then closes in 10, referring to them as the household of faith. You know, so often our identity is. Is bound up perhaps in our biological family or in the workplace, but that term brother, verse one, it's a term of affection and familial care. It's it's the image of siblings in a family, right? Brothers and sisters, and it's a reminder to us that that if we're in Christ this morning, these bonds, the bonds that we share in Christ, those ought to be the dearest bonds to us, right? More than coworkers, more than teammates. Our bonds in Christ don't merely exist for an athletic season or for a term of employment, or maybe even just for our throughout our entire life. I mean, if we look around the room, these relationships aren't just meant to be Sunday acquaintances. These are those where, if you are in Christ, these are the people with whom you will spend eternity. Eternity. And that's something you simply can't say of those that you work with or those that you play with or those even that you may have been raised with. These relationships, Paul's reminding us, have eternal significance, which is why inside those familial bookends we're called to a number of things. Verse 1, to restore one another. Verse 2, to bear with one another. Verse 6, to share with one another. Paul's basic point, I think what he's trying to get at, is that the Christian life is not just about me and Jesus, but how I'm helping others to follow Jesus. I think he's effectively saying the Christian life, it's not just about me and Jesus, but how I'm helping others to follow Jesus. Right? The Christian life's the communal life. And the various imperatives that we see in this text, help flesh out what should that life look like amidst our own body. Right? And the first mark is this. first mark is this. Genuine Christian communities, they repair the broken. Mark 1, they repair the broken. We see that in the first command right there. Verse 1, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should, and here's our imperative, restore him. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You know, here's the thing. If you haven't picked up from the songs we've sung and from the prayers that Tanner already led us in, we all sin. Every one of us sins. You know that expression, the air is human. We recognize that. Nobody denies that. It's just that our errors aren't actually against sort of abstract principles, but they're against people. And our our fundamental error is against God. Left to ourselves, we naturally want to choose our way over God's way. So if God's word says, hey, this is dangerous, this is dangerous, we immediately think, oh, really, it is? How how dangerous is it? And we walk right up to the line, we push the line, we cross over the line, right? That's why they're called transgressions. We transgress, we cross those good boundaries that God has given to us. It's innately part of who we are. It's why we're considered sinners. And sometimes we act like that's a big surprise. Like that knowledge that we're sinners, I mean, that's worthy of like some wiki leak. But it's simply not. That simply is the case. It's not a heavily regarded state secret. And we don't help ourselves if we treat our own sin or the sins of others in that way. So Paul's saying, okay, what do you do if you see a brother or sister in sin? He says right there, restore. Restore him or restore her. And that word for restore, it actually has the the image, it's used elsewhere of of mending a net, of rebuilding a wall, particularly of, of resetting a broken bone. It's to return something to its former condition. So like physicians... Within the church body, we are to repair the broken. To repair the broken. Like the setting of a bone that will often involve some pain, some initial pain, but that pain is necessary if we're to make someone whole. All right. so is is this an invitation for all of us to run about scalpels in hand looking to make cuts into anyone who might possibly reveal some sense of sin in their lives? Well, that's not what Paul was saying. Paul's saying that we don't address all in that way, but verse 1, those who are caught. Notice he says, those who are caught in transgression. Caught doesn't suggest they've stumbled once, right? but they're, they're trapped. They've been overtaken. It implies there's some destructive pattern that could be seen and observed. Because listen, we all have annoying habits. If you're not certain of that, just spend more time with us. I promise you, all of us have annoying habits. And it's the mark of Christian maturity and charity that we forbear with one another, remembering that love covers over a multitude of sins. So while we shouldn't be too quick to criticize, we also can't be too afraid to confront we don't want to be too quick to criticize, but we shouldn't be too afraid to confront. Right? Paul says, restore them. He doesn't say ignore them. He says, restore them. So we shouldn't say to ourselves, oh, you know, that's, that's really none of our business. It really wouldn't be right of me to, to interfere in that person's life. Right? We're members of a family, of an eternal family. And what kind of love would walk past one caught like as in a trap, helpless pray in a trap, bleeding out, who would just walk by and say, ah, you know, it's none of my business. I'll, I'll kind of let them sort that one out. Well, no, love would cause to get involved, to care for them. He says, restore them, right? Rest- don't ignore them, restore them. Also, he also, doesn't say report on them, which means we, when we observe someone caught struggling in sin, we don't bring it to another before bringing it first to them. Your first instinct shouldn't be, oh, I better take this one to the pastor. That's not the first instinct. It's take it to them. We don't, we don't gossip about them, but we first go to them. As Jesus called us to in Matthew 18, 15 to 17, right? Restore them, not rebuke them. Doesn't call us to shame them, to wag the finger at them, to upbraid them. He says, mend them, help restore them to their former condition. That's what we must do. All right, but who's to do this? Well, he says, you who are spiritual. Verse 1, you who are spiritual. Now, Paul's not referring to some especially pious group of Christians. For what has Paul been at throughout this letter? But it pains to make clear that at our salvation... We received the Spirit, chapter 3, verses 2 and verse 5. That when we were adopted, 4-6, into God's family, what did we receive? We received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not just for a subset of some, but for all people. We are all thus spiritual people. So we're all called to this work. But how do we do it? How do we do it? He says right there, verse 1, in a spirit of gentleness. In a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness, that a fruit of the Spirit we saw back in 523. And it's the kind of gentleness, it's not, the, the underlying Greek word isn't exactly like sort of our English word. We might think of, of mild and, and just kind and considerate, you know, not pressing in too much. The kind of gentleness in the, in the Scriptures is the, it's the notion of not being overly impressed by one's own self-importance. So notice Paul's saying, listen, when you do this, you don't do this with any hint, with any hint of self-righteous superiority. Keeping watch on yourselves, he says, lest you too be tempted. Because gentleness, as we talk and as we seek to repair and mend, gentleness recognizes today it might be them, but tomorrow it might be me. Right, it might be them today that I'm having to help mend and repair, but tomorrow it could just as well be me. Right? I'm not beyond temptation. Right? So we don't treat one another, 526, with conceit or with cold indifference, but rather we lavish them with love and humility and compassion. I really think just begs the question, if this is the assumption, Paul's assumption, that this, is, this kind of work should be happening within the church body, I wonder, when was the last time you helped another brother or sister in need, helped to mend them, helped to repair what was broken within them? He is saying to these Christians, young Christians here in Galatia, that they are all competent to do this work. It's not just what the elders do. It's not just what the professionals do. It's not, hey, they need to go see a counselor. That's not what Paul says. Right? We saw last week, those who walk by the Spirit, what do they do? They live by the Word. So as we do this with one another, we want to bring the Bible to bear. We want to counsel the Scriptures. We want to pray the Scriptures with one another. You know, If you want to think more about this, as you just get involved in other people's lives, there in the bookstall, if you go out those doors just to the right, there's a useful resource, a great book, um, Paul Tripp, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand. Instruments in the in the Redeemer's hand. And it's a a practical book on how we can help one another change. For we're a hospital. That's part of the image. We're a hospital where people should come and feel like they can safely be healed and be made whole. Right? Tomorrow, it may be me. Today, it is them. We minister with that kind of humility as we seek to help one another get to heaven. And just consider for a moment, just consider as a church, if we sought to be more faithful in this charge of repairing one, mending one, trapped in sin, broken in sin, consider the gossip avoided. Consider the sin prevented. Consider the bodily health promoted. And just think how Christ would be even more exalted among us if we took this charge seriously. Alright, that's the first mark. But genuine Christian communities, they don't only repair the broken, they also bear the burdened. That's the second thing I want us to see. They bear the burdened. And you see that in the second imperative right there. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Alright, newsflash friends, we all have burdens. We all have burdens, and that shouldn't come as a great surprise to us. We're not exempted from them. We're not given a free pass. Now, I recognize that prosperity preachers and those in the word faith movement may tell you that your burdens are the result of a lack of faith. But I fear that's just because they're not in the faith. Because they're preaching a false gospel. And the same way Paul's condemning those here within and among the Galatians preaching a false gospel. Right? We have burdens. It is the reality of the Christian life. We have them and... They're not to be born alone. The assumption is that those burdens we possess aren't to be born alone. The problem is we like to do it alone. We love to be self sufficient. Spiritual John Waynes, if you will, who just we want to do it our way, and we don't want to we don't want to feel any any notion of indebtedness to someone else who's had to come alongside us and and help bear those burdens with us. But recognize in the Christian life, that's not a sign of bravery. That's a sign of deep immaturity. Right? That's not progress. That's actually great pride being exposed. I mean, to think that this morning you can bear all of your burdens alone. You know, might be like Tom Brady. Okay, we've got the Super Bowl later. Tom Brady... Comes out on the field, just about to kick off, and he grabs his players around, and he looks at his massive O-line, and he looks at his fullbacks and his wideouts and everyone else and says, hey, guys, it's been great, but I got this one. You can, just go, you can go ahead and take a seat. I'm going to take the field. I, 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 can, I can win this one. I, I can do this one on my own. And so he trots off there to the end zone to receive the kickoff. And you know what that would look like. Here's a guy who's about 40 years old, skinny white guy who can't run, who's got a bum knee, can't run any faster than his coaches. He'd get creamed on the first play, right? He'd never make it. If Brady were to tell his whole team to sit down and say, I got this one on my own, we would say that's not a sign of humility. That is a sign of incredible hubris. It is ridiculous. Of course, you don't have this one on your own. You need that O-line. You need all that people around you if you have any shot. But that's not how we treat the Christian life, is it? We don't assume we need those people around us, that we have to lean on those people around us. We wake each day, burdens abounding, and we often decide, you know what, I'm going to bear this one on my own. And that's why he gives that warning, I think, in verse 3. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Right. Those who live in such splendid isolation as they may see it, right, they're just guilty of pride. Because either we don't think we need others, or in our pride, we're too self-consumed to be of any use to others. It can go either way. We deceive ourselves by thinking too highly of ourselves which is why he says we're called there to test our own work, to test our own work, verse 3. We're called to honest self-examination. Part of, I think, what Paul's doing in these verses is he's warning us against a kind of sinful comparison. Because that's what we love to do. Surrounded by community, what do we do? We start comparing ourselves with one another. Right? How much stress can I bear that perhaps he can't bear? Or what can I accomplish that perhaps she can't accomplish? It's what we do in order to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. But Paul's saying, listen, at the end of the day, all of you will stand before the Lord, and you're, verse 5, going to have to bear the burden of your own load. In other words, you're accountable to God for what he's entrusted to you. Not what he's entrusted to someone else. You're accountable to God for what he's entrusted to you. So don't take pride in what you can do that another can't do. Well, similarly, God's not going to hold you accountable for gifts that He's given to others. Right? So don't resent what you don't have. If we do this properly, one day we can stand before the Lord and we'll be able to boast, verse 4, and what He's done through us by the Spirit without having to compare ourselves to our neighbor. Right? Such a proper self-assessment reminds us with humility that we need one another. You know Christianity is not an individualistic religion. It's not simply about me and Jesus. Neither Jesus nor Paul say the mark of the believer is measured simply by the length of their personal devotions or by the measure of their private spiritual disciplines. Right Jesus says, "How will they know who are my disciples?" John 13:35, "by the love which they have for one another." Paul says, "We're to love one another." 5:13 and 14. That we're to serve one another, chapter 5, verse 13. That we are restore one another, 6-1. We're to bear each other's burdens. Tanner read us from 1 John 1 about the kind of love that we're to have within the community. Yes, you'll need time in the Word if you're going to be able to pour anything out. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit. But then that has to get fleshed out in relationship. It's not simply about the theology we read, but whether we've actively given ourselves to those in misery and in need. Does that describe you? I wonder if that describes you. Because a Christian's the kind of person who ought to care more about another's interests than their own. All right, so what burden have you borne this week with another member in the church? Or maybe this year? Can you name any burdens you're seeking to bear within the body? Now, listen, if you've come this morning and you've come as a non-Christian, I've been talking a lot about the relationships within the body, but I just want you to recognize that you've actually come in with a burden and you may say, yeah, I know that I got burdens, but there's a burden you bear that actually none of us in this room can bear for you. There is one. There is a spiritual burden that you've come in with this morning that's beyond your capacities, and that's the burden, the insufferable weight of your sin. And it's a burden that's too great for your shoulders. It's a burden that's too great for my shoulders. But there, are, there is one. And there is one whose shoulders are broad enough and whose bones were strong enough to bear that burden for you. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do when he came down to earth to bear our sins upon the cross. Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Fifty three, twelve. he bore the sins of many and was interceded for the transgressors. You this morning, if you've come as a non-Christian, you can be forgiven. You can have the burden of your sin lifted off your shoulders as you confess them, turn from them, and trust in Christ. Before you can ever bear another's burden, you need to have that large, insurmountable burden. You need to have Christ bear that for you. So don't walk out these doors without looking to him and asking him to bear that burden and the forgiveness of your sins, trusting in him and knowing that with the resurrection of Christ, right? He has taken that burden off your shoulders and he is nailed to the cross. It is no more right? there is no condemnation for those in Christ. That's the burden. If you've come as a non-Christian that you need to be freed of this morning. But for those of us who've come and we've trusted in Christ, what does it look like? What do we need in order to bear one another's burdens? Well, it requires humility. You know, Lewis famously said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. In other words, humility is not to despise yourself so much as it is to forget yourself in the service of others. And it starts right there and it requires us to get Close to the burdened. We need to get close to the burdened. It means we don't keep people at arm's length but we invite them in. And then as we're invited in, we don't get scared to help get underneath them and put our shoulder under the weight to take those burdens upon our shoulders as well. It involves opening up our lives and being transparent. And when someone does this, when someone bears a burden, and maybe it's the burden of a, a repetitive, quiet, secret sin, whatever it might be, don't act so surprised. Whatever you do, don't act so surprised. Never say something like, oh, you know, that's really not the kind of thing that we should talk about publicly. Or, I mean, because I mean, think, if, if you say that to them, what are they supposed to do with those burdens? Are they supposed to go away and bear them alone? Right? We've talked about the spiritual life, the life at war. The soldier who sees his fellow comrade injured on the ground doesn't walk by and say, best of luck to you. I hope you can make it back. No, he comes around him. He pulls them on his shoulder. He takes them back. He goes after him, bearing him, caring for him. And now listen, we won't always know exactly how to do that well. How do we bear another's burdens? But we can always listen and we can always pray. Two things you can certainly do. You can listen and you can pray. And we must never forget that the most basic way we can alleviate another's burden is to bring that burden to the Lord in prayer. You know, so John talks about the directories this morning. As you go, I'd encourage you, just take that directory. How can you bear one another's burdens? Pray through this directory. Pray for them. We all have them. Pray that you could be of some assistance as you lift them up before the Lord and bearing that burden. And we've got to remember that as we bear one another's burdens, part of what we're doing is we're actually entering into Jesus' own ministry. So that when those around us stumble to carry our burdens, because you're going to try to help someone or you're going to open yourself up to someone and they're going to try and help you and they will stumble. Inevitably, they will stumble to help you. You know, when they say that thing that isn't helpful and you walk away wondering, why in the world did I try to do that? Brad said, be transparent. I did it. And yeah, this is what I get. No, thanks. Yeah, sometimes that happens. I'm sorry, they're sinners, we're working on it. Like, it will happen. Inevitably, that person will say that thing to you that isn't helpful. Or what they're going to do is they're going to be like, oh, that's your burden, let me compare yours to mine. As if that's somehow going to be helpful. Don't compare your burden to someone else and they share their burdens with you. Come alongside them, help them bear it. It doesn't matter if you think yours is greater. They have a legitimate one. right? And we can always remember that as we do that, we can always bring them to Him. We can cast all of our cares upon the Lord, for He alone has uniquely borne our burdens and carried our sorrows. But I want us to notice just one final mark of genuine Christian community. Yeah, they repair the broken, they bear the burdened, they share with the brothers. Mark three, share with the brothers. We're just picking up on those those commands, right? Repair, bear, share. It's a Baptist church. It's a three-point sermon. There you go. Verse 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. All right, so the first kind of sharing Paul has in mind is the kind of sharing, actually the congregation is to do with its pastors. Right? What does it mean? Well, that verb is actually comes from that rich Greek word koinonia, you know, that word for fellowship, for community, for communion and generosity that ought to mark Christian relationships. Well, this verb carries the notion actually of of generosity in the terms of financial support. Paul is calling right here on these congregations to financially support their pastors. This may well be the earliest New Testament reference to kind of paid pastoral ministry as we think of it today. And we don't know why Paul felt the need to give the command, though it's certainly not a new one. Jesus said of those he sent out, right, the laborer deserves his wages. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And just notice how that context in Second Corinthians 9 of sowing and reaping, how similar it is to the context here in Galatians chapter 6. Think you know, of 1 Timothy 5.17 or Titus 3.13. But this, this notion of, of fellowship, of sharing, makes it less about a payment to pastors for services rendered, and it speaks it more about a partnership. It's less about a payment. It's more about a partnership. And what are they to share? Like their leftovers, all the old used things. No, Paul says good things. Share good things. But one good thing, a few good things. No, he says all good things. Right? It's why churches ought to pay their pastors well. Right? When I first became a Christian, I remember hearing pretty soon, yeah, keep them poor, keep them humble. Well, at the time, I didn't really care much because I wasn't a pastor. Well, I care a little bit more now. And let me just say, if that's your approach, all you're going to do is you're, gonna, you're not going to help your pastor in any way remain long with you. You know, his wife will become embittered with ministry, his children that have to live in that environment. They may themselves end up coming to resent Christianity for what they saw. So pray just for this church. Pray for the work of the comp committee as they seek to care well for the pastors and their staff. You know, just on a personal note, I think you all have done a great job with me and my care, how you've cared for me. Just You've just voted on a salary for me in the budget. I'm very thankful for that. I'm thankful I don't have to go get a second job thankful for the blessings of all those gift cards when we first got here right i'm not entitled to these things i get it i don't deserve these things i know a lot of pastors work and they try to do their pastoral ministry on the side in the evenings but just know that as you do that you free me up to give you the word and that's a great blessing to my wife to my kids because they see in that not just your care for me but they see in that a picture of how god has cared for them that's a good thing But it's a command not just for me, it's for others. This church sets aside to help bring the word, right? So Paul has elders, pastors, elders in mind, include men like John and Stephen, by extension, other pastoral staff. And there's no doubt, right? Such a command cannot be abused, of course. You know, prosperity preacher Eddie Long, if you're familiar with him out of Georgia, he died about two weeks ago, and he famously would boast regularly of his two Bentleys. Well, just to be clear, you don't pay me quite that well, (laughs) But that doesn't mean pastors can't be seduced by the love of money, 1 Timothy 6.10, or merely stay in a job because of the money. They're like a hireling. It's a good way just to pray for your pastors is that they're provided well for, that they themselves would use those resources and steward them well, and their families and with others, that they would share in such a way that honors God. But just note as well how Paul refers to the congregation and the pastor. He says, the one who is taught and the one who teaches. So right there, we just begin to see that the New Testament expectation is that when a church gathers, right, you're not entering into some kicking concert with skits and movie clips. This isn't a six flags over Jesus event. In case you've been confused by that, that's actually not what we're trying to do. We don't come here to be entertained. We come to encounter the living God through his word. I was having lunch with a member this week and I asked him and that I'm like, hey, what do you like most and least about UBC? I love to ask that question. I learned wonderful things about people's experience of church. And uh, I'll never forget when I asked, I think the first time I asked that question, the person said, what I like least are the sermons. I was like, whoa, okay. Woo, it's our first lunch. <laughs> I was thankful for his honesty. This person didn't say that. Um, what did he, what did he like most? He said, you know what? What I like most, there's no show. There's just no show on Sunday mornings. Well, that's intentional. I thought that was great. What do you like least, you may be wondering? Well, the difficulty in making relationships as a single adult who doesn't hail from this area, who doesn't come from this area, which is just a good reminder to us. As much as we want fellowship and community, there is always room to improve more. Right, but the expectation is that there's teaching happening, but what's being taught, right? Effective tips for living, You know, how do you relieve your life of stress? How do you get out of debt? Hey, let's do a series on New Year's resolutions. No, what does he say? 6-6. Pastors teach what? They teach the Word. They teach the Word. The assumption in the New Testament. Christians gather. They gather to be guided by the Word. We see the centrality of the Word again, not just in walking by the Spirit as we thought of last week, but even in Christian worship as well, which includes what we sing, so that what you heard sung... And what you sing in those pews is the same thing, the same kind of doctrine that you're going to heard preached out of this pulpit. The prayers, the reading, the message all centered around this word. And there's a passive element, right? Because one teaches while the others are what? They're being taught as you are being taught right now. Like dialogue is more fun. I'd love to stop and take questions and we can have an interesting conversation about it. But that's not what Paul has in mind. Paul says, yeah, one person's going to open his trap and you all close yours. And that's a good thing that reflects a posture of humility because we recognize we need to be instructed before we go about our weeks and open our mouths all day long. The first thing we do is shut them so that we can hear from the Lord. What does he have to say to us? Which is why I preach expositionally, why I work systematically through the Bible, because there are 66 books God has lots of ideas in here that go well beyond my greatest ideas. And it would be terribly proud of me to assume that I know what you most need when he's given me all of this. So we work through it. And I assume, you know what? There's a lot of stuff in Job that I think would be a little hard to gut through. But we're going to gut through it because I trust it's profitable and we're going to learn and we're going to benefit from it. Which is a good reminder, just as you think, okay, what does Brad do all day? Well, my primary job, I'm not a CEO of a company like I recognize I have to in part, I got to manage staff, but I don't run a business and I come out here and I'm marketing my product and you're all the potential customers. Some of you are kind of paid customers. Some of you are potential customers. I'm trying to win over. That's not what I'm trying to do when when I preach. I'm not a paid one and one discipler of others though I should be doing some of that work. I'm not a floating trustee who goes around and sits on all kinds of boards. My dad has that gig. It sounds like the best gig ever. He gets paid for it even. That's actually not what I do. Paul has in mind, the pastor, but notice he calls him by his title. What's the title? It's teacher. So of all the things a pastor may do, the one thing he must do is not neglect the preparation of the word. The one thing he can't neglect, which is why, as a pastor, I need to be entirely happy for everything to fail at UBC. I need to be content. If everything fails at UBC, accept the preaching of the word. Accept the preaching of the word. And that's a difficult tension because my instinct is to spend time with you And to do good things with you. And to neglect the preparation of the word. But that's actually not finally being faithful to you or to God. Just pray that I manage my week well. So that you're not left spiritually hungry on Sunday mornings. Because I often finish messages and I think, Yeah, oh man, I left so much good stuff out. I don't just mean I could have preached longer. But I could have preached better, clearer, tighter. And I don't want to leave you wanting as you go. God doesn't want you wanting as you go. Now, verse 7 and 8, we have this image of sowing and reaping. And that supports, actually, Paul's charge to share, as we thought about 2 Corinthians 9. Paul's saying, listen, we can be given, or we can rather use what we've been given for our own pleasure. He's saying, yeah, that's to sow to the flesh. Whereas we could share graciously with others. That's the sow to the Spirit. And to hope from that for a harvest of everlasting joy. And so Paul's going to step back then in verses 9 and 10, and he's going to encourage us not to grow weary, but as we have opportunity to do good to all, and then he qualifies it and says, especially to those of the household of faith, especially the household of faith. And Paul has a mind in this section, he still broadly has a mind doing financial good for one another, but it's not limited to that. As he gets to the end, he sort of broadens it to do good in some ways, broader goods to all. So how does a Christian prioritize? How does a Christian prioritize what it looks like to do good, especially financial good, right? Lots of commercials about, you know, there are commercials of, of starving children and stray pets, and like we'll get it all probably during the Super Bowl. Like how, do you, how does a Christian think through, what do I support, what do I do amidst all the competing needs? Well, I think as we see elsewhere in the Scriptures there's a, there's a hierarchy of responsibility based on moral proximity. That sounds complicated. It's really not that complicated, right? The closer the moral proximity, the greater the moral obligation, which means the closer we are to someone, how well we know them, how connected they are to us, that helps inform our obligation to provide need. So a resident in Fayetteville may lose their job. That'd be a good thing of me to help. But if my sister in South Africa loses her job and can't provide for her needs, well, Paul says, I'm worse than an unbeliever if I ignore my sister, right? I got to start there. I got to start with my sister with that closer relationship, even if she is on the other side of the globe. And in the same way, if a member of UBC loses a, ha- loses a house to a fire, they lack insurance, right? They need help. It is right of me to support that person, even if a member loses their house by fire three states over. Right? I, 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 well, a member of another church. What I'm saying is I help the one that I know that's in close relationship with me. Now this shouldn't make us cavalier to the poor and needy by any means, but it does help us know where to begin because otherwise amidst all the needs, we're just gonna be racked by guilt and we're going to give up altogether. And I say all that because we should be looking around for the needs within the body. How can we meet those needs? No, we have a benevolence fund. A fund set aside to help members in need know that you can contribute toward that one way to contribute toward it as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Maybe at the end of that of that time, just make it a practice of maybe I will do something in addition to what I regularly give to the church just to help support those in need and just give a designated gift to the benevolence fund. That's a thing Christians have often done. If God's blessed you with the means, it's not simply so that you can have more, but so that you can do more for others. And we live in a generation that has far more disposable income than centuries past, which means there ought to be not only a gentleness among us, but there's to be a generosity that marks our relationships, right? That Tanner read from that kind of generosity when you see a brother in need from 1 John 3. So I just wonder about you, just practically. You've got a budget. Maybe some of you reset your budgets in 2017. What about putting a line item in that budget that simply is titled, blessing others. That's it. Doesn't have to be a lot of money, but just something that you set aside where you can strategize to be a blessing to others and you don't have to wonder, oh, do I have the means to do that? Oh, no, I set aside $100 this month. I can be a blessing to someone else in a very obvious, concrete way. That'd be a great way to sort of put this into practice because it's easy. It's really easy to grow weary and doing good, to become faint-hearted, which is why Paul says, what, don't give up. Don't give up. And so verse 9, I think, is a wonderful way for us to pray for one another. You'll often hear me pray it in the pastoral prayer, that we not grow weary and well doing and doing good, because that's what we all do. We grow tired. We grow weary. And don't we need that prayer every morning? As you pray through that directory, what am I supposed to pray for people I don't know? Pray verse 9. Pray they wouldn't grow weary and well-doing this morning. Listen, it's these three primary commands. I think we get a, a really beautiful picture of what Christian community ought to look like. So we thought about walking by the Spirit, warring against sin. It's a battle. We take hits. So what is this fellowship? Well, it's kind of like an aid station of nurses and medics that help repair those who are broken, who've taken hits in the battle they face. It's for those who are bent over, those who are struggling to bear the weights of difficulties. All right? We're not just physicians. We're also pillars. We come alongside them, helping to bear those burdens with them. For God gives you loads and me loads that are beyond us. That's why he's given you others, to help bear them with you. But we're not just physicians. We're pillars. That's sort of the. We're philanthropists, right? We have means. We want to be share, eager, ready to those and to meet those needs. So healing, supporting, providing. That's how God has treated us in Christ. That is how we are to treat one another. So I just wonder, is that your understanding? As we ask that question, hey, what do you think about church? Is that your understanding of what church community ought to be? Is church something rather you just go to once a week Or, which, if you realize, it doesn't make even a lot of sense to use that language. So sometimes I'll talk to people. Oh, so tell me about your church. I go here. I think I know what they mean. But that's actually not how the Bible would encourage us to think about church. It's built around accountability and responsibility for repairing, bearing, and caring for one another in relationships. You know, why would you not want to be part of such a community? What part will you play in making UBC that kind of authentic Christian community? Let's pray together. Oh God, we pray and we thank you for this word. Lord, we thank you for the ways it very practically pushes upon us. Lord, we pray if we know there are those struggling with sin feeling the burdens of this world. God, we pray that we would be the kind of place that would both help to repair and bear, that we would be alongside them and caring for them well. Lord, we will not do this perfectly, but we pray that we would do it humbly, with gentleness. Lord, help us to be a safe place for those who are hurting and those who need help. Oh God, you have been that kind of safe place for us, not leaving us in our sin, calling us out of it, Lord, we pray that we would do so graciously as well and that we would provide for one another. God, help us in that work. We cannot do it alone. We rely upon you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.